If you'd like to go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to begin there in just a moment. But as always, it's good to see everyone out, the number that we do have out. Uh, we are missing a few individuals due to traveling and, and sickness. Although it feels like we may be missing some just because how dark it is, it feels like it's just about bedtime. But uh, it's good to see everyone here and to study God's word a little bit more, worship him a little bit more. And as I already prepared you this morning, we are going to continue our thoughts from our, our main focus this morning, which was focusing on God's grace and how God makes sinners righteous. In 1 Peter chapter 5, and verse 12, Peter talks about this true grace of God that they have always exhorted and testified about, and he says that they need to stand firm in that true grace of God. There is true grace, and then there is grace that man says is God's grace, but is really just some idea that man came up with. And how we can tell that is by if those ideas of grace align with God's. And we talked about how people distort that today. One of the main ways that people distort that uh, true grace of God today, and that is through this Calvinistic view of the imputed righteousness of Christ on the believer. And, and we, we kind of you know, talked about that a little bit this morning, how the absolute necessity for God's grace in our lives, how, how people distort it in so many ways, and especially in this way. But just to briefly, uh, if you weren't here this morning, and, and maybe just kind of review in our minds, refresh our minds, briefly what this false doctrine indicates is that when Jesus is on the cross, and we looked at this chart this morning, that God's righteousness is credited to the believer, or transferred is really what they mean. They don't mean credited. Uh, and, and we even made that point very clear. It, they mean that it's transferred. But even though it's the correct language here. But he says that God's righteousness is credited to the believer, but our sin is credited to Christ. And we talked about just the absolute error of this notion. Are we justified by the sacrifice of Christ? Yes, but it's not in this way. Because what we looked at is one of the most terrible consequences that you could ever imagine is that if you take this view, this Calvinistic view, is that it means that Christ is corrupt. It means that Christ is a sinner. It means that Christ is sinful. Why? Because he's inherited or he's gotten all of my sin transferred over to him. Therefore, when he is on the cross, when God looks at him, he is not the innocent sufferer that Isaiah 53 talks about. He is not the one who in, in Hebrews chapter 7 Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 25, I kind of bumped the, the button here. Hebrews chapter 7, beginning in verse 25, I'd like to read this very quickly because I think that this, this helps us understand. Hebrews 7 in verse 25, it says, Therefore he is able to also save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices but uh, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered himself why was he the perfect sacrifice because un uh, and the perfect high priest because unlike all the other high priests they didn't have to cleanse themselves before they could cleanse others this high priest only cleanses others how because he is that perfect offering, that perfect sacrifice. He is truly innocent. He is truly separated from sinners. And what's interesting about this doctrine is that it would say, well, yes, he's separated from sinners, but I guess he's not separated from sin. That just doesn't make sense. Over in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 3, it says that this was according to the scriptures that Christ died for our sins. Not because he was a sinner, not because he was guilty, for, but because 
we sinned and he bore our sins, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. 1 Peter chapter 3, that it was the just that died for the unjust. Everywhere throughout the Bible, it only talks about Jesus on the cross as that innocent sufferer. Not as a guilty sinner like me. Not a guilty sinner like you. The only reason that his sacrifice had power, the only reason that his sacrifice had any meaning whatsoever was because he was not guilty of breaking God's sin. We needed that sacrifice so that we could, uh, so that way we could um, escape that judgment that was going to come on to us because we had sinned. So I I just wanted to put a list of verses up here uh, for just for your consideration because we didn't have enough time to go through all of this as we looked at especially that passage in in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 where it says that he became sin for us. That is not saying he became literally sin. In fact, that word is used, and we talked about this earlier, in the Old Testament, it is used time and time again when it's talking about that sin offering. And doesn't that just make all the sense in the world? It would be kind of random if all of a sudden, after everything God has said, he said, now he's become sin. That came out of nowhere. But if you read it with the context of, I don't know, all of God's word, it's the notion of a sin offering. That's what Jesus is. And so I I, I will just say, with all that being said, just with this consequence alone, I don't know how, but one still might wonder, what's the big deal? And that's what I want to talk about tonight. And tonight we're just going to see how much this really does impact the Christian today and how this ultimately impacts our walk with God, how it impacts our uh, view of a biblical fellowship with God and with man, how it really changes what the Bible says about faith and obedience. And then we'll end with looking at how this really, this doctrine challenges scriptural authority. And it challenges God's authority. And so we're going to look at all of these consequences tonight as we see how this Calvinistic um, approach really does impact our view on things. We've already made the case it's wrong. It's erroneous. It's not true. It's unscriptural. But we need to look at just all of the consequences this brings because even still, I think sometimes, brethren, just, just because, and I really do think that there are probably good intentions with this. We want to keep the peace as much as possible. We want to be able to be on common ground as much as possible. This is not something that we can be on common ground with. This is a false gospel that really brings severe consequences if we allow it in. So let's look at this first notion that it impacts our walk with God. And how does it impact our walk with God? First and foremost, it really ultimately downplays God's grace. And isn't that what we started with? That we are trying to defend the true grace of God. What this does is is really grossly uh, degrades it. And it makes us underappreciate it in one of two ways. And you really can't get around uh, either of these. But in one of two ways, this downplays God's grace. On the first hand, it denies the need for forgiveness. The reason I say that is because once you understand what this uh, doctrine is, that Jesus has our sins transferred over to him, making him sinful, and we uh, have his righteousness transferred over to us, when you think about it in those terms, when he's on the cross, what is there to forgive? Honestly, if that's what happens, what is there to forgive if Christ's righteousness is what God sees and nothing else? If there's really no sins there left, what is the point for forgiveness? It takes away all of the passages that talk about God's forgiveness and how this was his plan all along. And so Christ's righteousness being transferred makes forgiveness, a word like redemption, atonement, wasted space in scripture. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 5 beginning. Ephesians chapter 1 in verse 5. And we won't read every single text that's on the screen tonight. This is just for for your edification if you'd like to write them down and look at them later on. And I will just say afterwards, if you have any questions, please come and talk to me about this. Uh, I would love to answer any questions that come up. But in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5, 
It says he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. And so Paul kind of uh, every now and then talks about this notion of this mystery of the gospel and how it is revealed through the Holy Spirit and revealed through Paul giving it to to the Gentiles and giving it to the Jews and how everyone is to understand what this mystery was all along. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory, as he'd say in Colossians chapter 1. And it's very similar language that he uses. We already indicated in 1 Corinthians 15 verses 3 and 4 that both his death and his resurrection was according to Scripture. In Jeremiah chapter 31, that's a very interesting passage, and really it brings us into this second way that it denies, uh, that it downplays God's grace, this doctrine. But in Jeremiah 31, what does it talk about? But that there is going to be not just, not just a, an overlook of forgiveness, or overlook of sins, there's going to be real forgiveness. It's going to be cleansed. It's going to be washed away. It's not going to be there anymore. And this is really the main, uh, probably the main crux of the argument here, is that this false doctrine denies the sufficiency of Christ's sacrifice, his death, and his blood to forgive sins. That's ultimately what this does. Over in 1 Peter again, 1 Peter chapter 1 in verse 18. 1 Peter 1 in verse 18. It says, knowing, or we'll start in verse 17. If you address the Father as Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. So what does he say? It's that blood, it's that death that ultimately gives us that access to salvation, that ultimately gives us access to washing sin truly away not just overlooking it not just saying uh, not just God saying I'm overlooking it until a certain time this is the time in Christ's blood in his death and and we could look at several others we'll look at Romans chapter 5 very quickly Romans chapter 5 we read uh, earlier the first couple of verses there of Romans chapter 5 where it talks about how we are justified by faith Romans chapter 5 In verse 9, it says, Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. We could also go to several other passages like Hebrews chapter 9. But ultimately, what I want to, the point that I want to make is this. When you see how the scriptures talks about Christ's blood and his sacrifice and his death and how all of this is enough to cleanse people of their sins, if sins are simply transferred, have they been absolved? If this false doctrine is true, if it was true, all that it would mean is that the sins just move to another place, but it's never forgiven. In fact, there was, I don't want to embarrass her, but there, there was one member who came up to me earlier and she gave me an analogy and I thought it was really good. And so I wanted to use it because I think that this is very appropriate. What you have essentially, and we looked at a few illustrations, a few ways of describing what this notion of Christ's righteousness being transferred over to us and our sins being transferred over to him. But you think about the debt that we have incurred. It's kind of like a credit card. You incur a debt, and you know, you don't have to pay it right now. And maybe even the bank is going to be gracious to you and allow you a little bit of time uh, to not have to pay that. But ultimately, at some point, someday, someone's got to pay. The bank 
well, is, is, does anybody here know of a bank that has ever just completely forgiven their, their debt? I mean, I'm sure it's happened at some point, but it is rare. <laughs> but at some point, the debt has to be paid. At some point, someone has to pay the cost. Someone has to pay the penalty. And even within that illustration, it's the bank that ultimately has to pay that penalty. Because what have they done? They've lost something. Because no one has paid them back for that money lost. And so I thought that that was a really good illustration because ultimately, I think this is the case here. If sins are simply transferred, at some point they still have to be paid. And if it's only forever transferred to someone else, they haven't been forgiven, they haven't been absolved, sin is still a problem. Why? Because what this doctrine indicates is that his blood is not enough to pay that debt. And that's a problem. Does anybody really want to take this gospel? A false gospel. I tell you, accepting this false understanding of biblical righteousness will inevitably lead to abusing God's grace. This is one of the main consequences. Over in Romans chapter 6, in verse 1, as he's talking about how we are justified by Jesus, justified through faith, by his blood, it says in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6, well, let's go ahead and read verse uh, 20 of chapter 5, just to get the context a little bit more. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through the righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, The reason that this text is important is because I think sometimes when we talk about this, people would hear us say, it's abusing God's grace ultimately. But people would come up, and probably defenders of this would come up and say, but but it's not about abusing God's grace. All we're trying to do is show people that God's grace will cover them even though they're imperfect. And I'll tell you, that sounds sweet. It really does. But we have to come back to this idea that will sincerity really, uh, does sincerity equal innocence? I can be sincere in a lot of things, but what if I'm sincere in sin? What then? Especially after I've read the gospel and after I've read the commandments that God has for me, what then? We are abusing God's grace. And, I, and maybe some people say this innocently, they say this honestly, and they're just trying to be helpful as much as they can. I think we just need to focus more on the grace of God. I do want to focus more on the grace of God. That's why we need to come to verses like this where Paul says people will do this and they still do this today. How do they do this? In fact, there's, there's a really good example of this. There is a, a good preacher friend of mine that was talking to another gospel preacher. And they were talking about the, this topic and some things that, that, some consequences that they've seen kind of creep up on some brethren. And, and uh, uh, my friend, he was talking to this uh, other preacher and, and he said, you know, let me ask you this. You, you keep saying that sincerity really is, is important. But if, if a man is sincerely studying his Bible, if a man is sincerely worshiping God, if a man is sincerely engaging in the church, and a man is sincerely active in an institutional church, will he go to heaven? I think that's a good question. The response, I think, was a bit of a dodge because that other man said, well, I'd have to judge that situation for myself. I'd have to be there to see it. And you know, we don't have to end it in just that way. It could be all kinds of things that we could just fill in the blank. But this is the point here. Whether he wanted to admit it or not, what he was really proclaiming was not the beauty of God's grace, but its distortion. Translation, grace will abound in the fact of that, even though that man's sin is unrepented. Grace will abound in the face of that man's unrepentant sin. 
That's the translation there. That is abusing God's grace. We need to be assured. We need to be confident in God's grace. But we should never, ever, ever be confident in abusing it. And we need to make that clear when people ask questions like this. And we need to make that clear when it comes to uh, conversations about this false doctrine. Well, not only does it impact our walk with God, but it perverts the relationship between faith and obedience as we indicated before. This doctrine butchers God's definition of faith by separating obedience from it. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we, we sang a song that was kind of themed behind that verse that, that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For the one who comes to God must believe in him and believe that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That how, that's how important faith is. But, but what people do sometimes is they come in and they talk about this word and they try to rip it out of the Bible's context, God's context, and say things like, well, what people are starting to do is attach works to this. What people are starting to do is attach obedience to this. No, we just need to be focused on just believing in God, just, just faith. Well, you know what? I do. I believe that I want to focus on faith. I want to focus on what God has to say about it, just like with grace. So in Romans chapter 1 and verse 15, and at the end of Romans, it almost bookends this notion as he talks about faith throughout the entire epistle. What he starts and ends with is the phrase, the obedience of faith. Isn't that interesting? In Acts chapter 6 in verse 7, it says that many were becoming obedient to the faith. Faith and obedience are connected. And that's by God's standard. That's not just me saying this. Look at these passages and tell me that these don't matter. And go to Hebrews chapter 11, where, where we just read from in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. What does faith look like? You look at all of those examples that God gives us, and you're going to tell me that obedience has nothing to do with it? No, no, we're not going to do that because we're good Bible students here. But so it, what this does, this doctrine unscripturally separates obedience from faith. And I would just say I think that the attack comes in the form of labeling the scriptural view Looking at the Bible and tell, telling it how it is that these things go together, what people tend to do is label this as legalistic or works-oriented. And we're going to look at one example, but as I was reading about this and studying about this, I like what one writer said. He said, appeals, genuine appeals for sound doctrine are rejected as revivals of legalism and perfectionism. Oh, wow. How, how could anyone say, come to a man who is trying to just preach sound doctrine, who is trying to only proclaim sound doctrine, the very words of God, and people get mad and say, oh, you're just, you're just too legalistic. Well, that's a common argument today. In fact, I want to give one example. There's a man named Arnold Harden, and he was a gospel preacher, uh, and, and he really started going, <laughs> just going off the radar with some of the things that he said and some of the things that he wrote. But he was a preacher in the 1970s, and one thing he said when he was talking about faith is this. Constantly, one sees efforts by brethren to turn faith into a work. And that work or effort is said to have been put down to Abraham's account, and so it is with us. Now listen to this. This is to teach that there is saving merit in human effort. That is, that faith, repentance, baptism is the ground or basis by which God can then declare that one is righteous. We do not actually believe such as we turn around and proclaim that the procuring cause is only the blood of Christ. This mixed up affair is the result of a failure to understand faith counted for righteousness. Now, I've highlighted one section in particular where he says that this is the notion that, that people are doing when they try to bring obedience into this. That's really what he means when he uses the term work he, or effort. He means obedience. That's what he's saying. And he says that this is to teach that there is saving merit in human effort. 
And then he brings up things like faith and repentance and baptism. Now, when I look at that, I think that there's one main problem that he, that he displays uh, as he writes this. What seems to be happening is he is confusing the ground, as he says, or the basis of our salvation with conditions. Human effort is a condition that is required by God's grace. That's what human effort is. That's what obedience is. That is what God wants from us. But what this man is trying to indicate, and I think what even more people are trying to indicate, uh, several people today, um, is the very opposite of what we find in Titus chapter 2 and verses 11 through 14. Danny talked about this a couple weeks ago. But what does God's grace do again? It instructs us to deny unrighteousness and it instructs us on what we need to do, the things we need to put on, how we need to act, how we need to be, how to be righteous. That is what the grace of God does. But here is a man coming in and saying, oh, but this means that we're making human effort, we're making obedience the ground or basis. No, it is a condition that God has required, that his grace has required. And so we need to come to this fairly and not just throw straw man arguments out and hope that they stick. This, this does not work when you come to scripture. But I would just like to, to ask this, what does faith actually look like? What does God say faith actually is? Over in John chapter 6, very quickly, John chapter 6, as Jesus is talking to the crowd who's come to him because they want to be fed, in John chapter 6 and verse 26, he has to rebuke them because they're focusing on the wrong things. He said, Jesus answered them and said, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. Do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him the Father God has set his seal. Therefore they said to him, what shall we do so that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God. What is the work of God? In verse 29, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Faith. Interesting. I was told that faith is not a work. In fact, I remember listening to a denominational preacher read this passage and say, look at what Jesus says. He says work by not working. What a cute little thing. That's not what Jesus said. He said, this is the work of God, faith. You believe in him, you trust in him, and you show true allegiance and loyalty to him. That's what the work of God is. Now, the, I would say that the defenders of this doctrine, of this false doctrine of, of, of Calvinism here, they would find God's view on faith problematic. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, it speaks of this in the very same way. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. It says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you could go to even James chapter 2 and verse 22. We, we won't go there tonight, but just understand, God speaks of this very differently than, than the rest of the religious world does. Over in 1 John chapter 3 in verse 23. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 23. What does John say? What does God say through John? This is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. What does God do but says that these are inextricably linked? They are tied together and you cannot separate them. Why does this matter? Why does it matter if we're off on this? If we, if we do end up separating faith from obedience because it portrays a strong false notion of faith. What did we say earlier in Ephesians chapter two and verse eight? But that 
How do we attain salvation? It is by grace through faith. And if we don't understand what faith is, guess what? We are not going to be able to give, have the faith that God says uh, is, is, is worthy of his reward, of his salvation. So that's why this matters. And we need to be careful about that kind of conversation. Not only that, but it opens the door to unscriptural unscriptural fellowship, unbiblical fellowship. If you want to stay in 1 John chapter 1, 1 John chapter 1, we'll begin in verse 5 in just a moment. But when you take this false doctrine, the belief very naturally leads to accepting sinful relationships. And, and we'll see how in just a moment. But in verse 5 of 1 John chapter 1, it says, This is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we do have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. And so there again you have that notion of that blood cleansing us actually and forgiving us truly. Now, clearly we can't have fellowship with God if no real change is in us. We cannot have fellowship with God if we are still walking in darkness, if darkness is still in us. Now, the Calvinists would come in and say, darkness is still in us because we've been justified even though sin remains as we quoted from earlier. So darkness is still in us, but we can walk in the light with God. That's what man says. But as we just read, that's not what God says. It's the very opposite of holy writ, of holy scripture. And so we need to make sure that when we try to have this conversation, we start with the foundation of the scriptures, not with articles, not with extra studies. We need to start with the scriptures so that way when people come to us and try to wiggle their way out of the clear commandments of God, the clear instructions of God, that we don't allow them to do that. So that's why that's one of the reasons why this is important because people will try to indicate that we can have fellowship with God even though darkness is still in us. But not only that, it starts with God. But if we can walk in the darkness and yet have fellowship with God, shouldn't it be the same with man? Shouldn't it be the same with his sinful practices and unscriptural beliefs and unscriptural behaviors? That, it just naturally progresses to that point. If I can have fellowship with God even though I'm sinning, I can have fellowship with others and fellowship and bring others in who are sinning. That's just the natural progression of this. And in fact, this has been the tactic, tactic used by not just outsiders, I'm telling you, by brethren. I want to quote uh, Arnold Harden again. We already looked at something he said about faith, but I want to look at another thing that he said in, in his article, uh, The Persuader, it's, what is the gospel? And this was a man who even, I'll, I'll just be honest with you, just from the top, he wanted to extend fellowship to denominations. And this was a gospel preacher at one point. But this is what he said when he talks about this fellowship. If one is right about Christ, the gospel, one can be wrong about some matter of instructions without being lost, can he not? If any dares to say no, then you must face the responsibility of doing exactly what those Judaizing teachers were doing, namely adding a system of law, keeping to justification by grace through faith. Such indeed is a perverting of the gospel, but until we learn of the gospel, we are going to continue down that dark road of legalistic law keeping and a dependence upon our own achievements instead of what God has done for sinners in Christ. And so that's the argument. Just being legalistic, you just care too much about this law. You care too much about God's word and God's commandment and obedience. You just care too much about this. I think it's interesting how he starts this. If one is right about Christ, the gospel, one can be wrong about some matter of instructions without being lost, can he not? That's a great assumption. 
And my question is, how can one be right about Christ if they won't obey him? How can one be right about Christ? How can one be right about the gospel if they are not willing to listen to it? And so from the very start, this just fails utterly. But I want to I go through a few examples of what this may look like. Because I'll just tell you, I've even recently heard a sermon by a gospel preacher who said essentially something like this. He ended up talking and saying that we shouldn't call people unsound just because they have a different belief on church organization, church function, or church work, and so on. I tell you what, I don't know what he's preaching, but it does not come from sound doctrine. It does not come from the gospel. Because what he's trying to do is bring things in. How do they justify this? Well, if all God sees is Christ's righteousness, as we talked about this morning, then what they would say is Christ's righteousness will cover them where they lack, will cover them even though they're in unrepentant sin. So I want to ask a couple questions. Could this not be the case that one is right about Christ, but wrong about something like homosexuality? Could we say that when it comes to sexual immorality? Could we say that one could be right about Christ but, and, and still be wrong about some instruction and yet not be lost, like the homosexual, the practicing homosexual? Is that a valid argument? I'll tell you, if Arnold Hardin was correct, then this is the logical conclusion. You can't get around this. You may say, well, of course we wouldn't want to do this because God says he doesn't like this. But you don't get to say that this is wrong anymore because you've opened the floodgates. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, Paul says that you have been washed from these things. Such were some of you, but you have been cleansed from those things, never to walk in them again. Couldn't someone come up and say, one could be right about Christ, even though they're wrong about the instructions of, of the church function and church works, and we could start building fellowship halls, and we could start building gyms. Because, yes, they're right about Christ, and that righteousness is going to cover them. God's not going to see that they're doing things that are just unscriptural, that is not a part of his instruction. Now, I'll tell you, if this doctrine is correct, you can't say anything against that because this flies, this, this, this works, this is, this is okay. You could say the same thing about instrumental worship. You could say the same thing about a man who is being factious, a man who is, is being divisive, as, as uh, Paul talks about in Titus chapter 3, that a man who is uh, uh, factious, you, you, uh, you, you rebuke him, and after a certain amount of times, you get rid of him. Why? Because he's continuing in this. But I'll tell you what, Someone could come up and say, but you know what? The righteousness of Christ covers that man. So we just, let's just move on. Don't, don't you know that love covers a multitude of sins? It does not supposed to cover active, practicing, unrepentant, unremorseful sin. I tell you, where does this stop? Nowhere. Because once we've taken away any and every boundary made by God, anything goes. God does not say, make these people feel at home, by, even though they're going to continue in sin. He says they need to correct that, and then they will have a home that transcends any other. That's what we need to be telling people. And, that's, and then we need to be prepared to, to have that conversation. Finally, the ultimate consequence, I think, is that this challenges, this fundamentally challenges scriptural, biblical authority. Now, you may be just asking, how does it do that? Well, because very simply, you have to bend scripture to make it say something that it does not teach, that God does not want it to teach. In Jude verses 3 through 4, we read that this morning. But what were people do? They were creeping in unnoticed. 
So that way they could start distorting God's grace. And what were they doing? They were distorting it by making it licentious, without moral restraint. They were using it to benefit themselves. They were using it to heighten themselves and, and, and you know, forget about everybody else. Forget about what God actually wants. When we teach a false gospel, when we live a false gospel life, ultimately what we are doing is we are taking part of that distortion. And we need to rebuke this firmly if we truly want to stand firm in the true grace of God as he says in 1 Peter chapter 5 I think that's one of the main questions are you willing to stand firm for the true grace or are we too afraid too timid to stand firm in the true grace we need to answer that question and so by teaching doctrine that is not God's that is obviously, clearly, certainly challenging scriptural authority. And it paves the way for future and greater false teachings. It paves the way for greater departures from the faith. Defenders of this doctrine constantly push against the way we establish authority. This is just one of the tactics. Again, there was a preacher that I was listening to, and he started talking about how we are supposed to establish authority. And he started kind of railing against the way we do things that, you know, kind of that notion of where the Bible speaks, we speak, where the Bible is silent, we're silent. And he started talking about examples and how, I don't know if they're so binding as we act like they are. He said, listen, no one is ever going to agree 100% on examples in the Bible and what it authorizes. Tell you what, that may sound tiny, it may sound, it may sound minuscule and minute, but what he is trying to do is pave the way for future and bigger leaps away from interpreting scripture and ultimately from true sound doctrine. We have to understand apostasy, departure from the faith, almost never starts out with outright rejection of God's word and instruction. It starts with a gentle nudge like this. It starts with a gentle nudge saying, you know, we can't really know the pattern. But in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5, what does the Hebrew writer say in Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 5? I think this is interesting. Hebrews 8, and uh, we'll begin in verse 4. Now, if, we were on, if he were on earth to be speaking about Jesus, he would not be a priest at all since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law who serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle for see, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which is which was shown you on the mountain. So what do we see here? All the way back at the time of Moses in that law, God was very clear and said, you make sure that you do everything according to the pattern and don't you do something on your own. You do as I say, nothing more, nothing less. You come to the things that, that those things were merely you know, pointing forward to. You come to the fulfillment. You come to the thing that shadows those beautiful things in the Old Testament. And yet we're going to come to this fulfillment, the perfection of these things, and say, God does not care about a pattern. Or maybe God has not given us a pattern in those things. That's, that's just clearly a dishonest and unfair approach to interpreting Scripture. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, a favorite verse of ours, that whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord. God says we can know and we should know. They constantly mock, though, the need for careful consideration for God's authority. Sometimes you hear someone say, the reason that we don't do X, Y, or Z is just because we're too scared of God and we don't understand His grace, that He is more loving. And they throw these things around trying to make us feel bad because we just care about God's grace, His true grace, and, 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 and His instructions of obedience. And, and every time someone says something like that, I just think, so, so you're saying, 
we have a poor understanding of God's grace because we are treating him as the creator, the source of our lives, and the very source of our actions, the source of our authority. That, that means that we, are just, we, we just don't treat him fairly, that we're not treating him the appropriate way. If you're not doing that with God, I think that you are not treating the, him the appropriate way. You're treating him a lot like people that, that resemble Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus chapter 11 or 10. They approached him irreverently. They approached him Oh, God is a gracious God. And what happens? Because they treat him irreverently, they are uh, put to death on the spot. That's what that kind of person is resembling. We are trying to focus on the true grace of God. And let me just say, without God's authority as the creator, without his authority as the author of all things, grace means nothing. If you have no power to absolve sin, if you have no power or authority to say you are forgiven... What is that going to do? Jesus was able to forgive people of their sins. He was able to save people from their illnesses because he had the authority to do it. If I went up to some random person and said, you are forgiven, that's not going to do anything except make me look like a fool because I'm putting myself in the place of God. And the reason is because I don't have that authority. Only God has that authority. Grace means nothing without God's authority. Because of his authority, we are justified. And if we abandon his authority, we are abandoning the very means of our salvation. So with all that being said, there was a lot that we talked about this morning and, and even this evening. And I would just hearken you back to what I said earlier. If you have any other questions, please let me know. Because I would love to talk to you about this. But this is, at the end of the day, a false doctrine. It is a false gospel. It is something that man has come up with to either make things easier or to try and get around the instruction that God has given us. And God says that that's not going to fly. What does Jesus say in Luke chapter 6? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do the things that I say? Christian, have you been calling him Lord but have strayed from that path? Have you walked a step that was not following the Christ's footsteps? You can make things right this morning. As we were reading from 1 John, what does he say in 1 John chapter 2? But that we have an advocate if we have sinned against him. And we can be reconciled with him again. Let him put you in a right relationship with God. Let him give you that fellowship with God once more. If you are not a Christian, you haven't done any of the things that he says is true faith. I would just, I would come, I would bring you back to what his grace teaches us. As, as we talked about, as Danny talked about in his lesson in Titus chapter 2. Are you willing to do what his grace instructs? Are you willing to repent of your sins? Everything that he says is sin? Are you willing to be faithful in the things that he says? Are you willing to make a confession based on that belief and be baptized into his death to rise in newness of life? You can have not just a transfer of sins that still needs to be paid. You can have your sins, that debt paid now. And what a beautiful relief and a weight, a burden lifted when we have that salvation. That is truly being justified by Christ. True forgiveness, atonement. Are you willing to do what he has required of you to have that atonement and have that forgiveness? If you're subject to the invitation of Christ by any means, please come forward as we stand and as we sing.